0: We come to that part of our worship where we, once again, let God speak to us through His Word. That is how God speaks to us today, and we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've been learning about wisdom, the wisdom that God gives, the wisdom that we should seek out. There are other kinds of wisdom, of course, wisdom in the world. There's a fake kind of godly wisdom that we'll look at today. It's not true godly wisdom, but it sounds like it, it looks like it. I invite you this morning to open up to Ecclesiastes 7, starting in verse 15. and We'll go through 29. I've entitled the message, The Kind of Wisdom God Blesses. Solomon has taken us through his own life experience and how he unwisely chased after many idols. Then he took us through many things that he observed in life. And now he's looking at different things that he experienced but not necessarily firsthand, just as he was walking around, looking, searching, things that he found. And so we looked last week at many topics, topics like death, topics like sorrow and laughter, the house of mourning, a funeral, oppression. But today, the main topic is wisdom. He once again returns to this issue of wisdom, and that makes sense. It's a wisdom book. It's wisdom literature. So let me read the passage to you, starting in Ecclesiastes 7, 15. I have seen everything during my lifetime of Hevel. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous, and do not be overly wise. Why should you run yourself? Do not be excessively wicked, and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom and explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains, One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking, but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. We're looking at the topic of wisdom. We need to have wisdom as Christians today. There's too many unwise Christians, not to mention there's too many in the world who are just unwise. The worldly unbeliever living out the same sin over and over, even the believer making the same mistakes over and over. And Solomon writes this book to teach us wisdom. He wants the young man in his court, the young men who will lead the nation someday to have wisdom. And he recorded it so that all who read the Bible might have wisdom. Now, for the believer, we read this and the Spirit applies it to our life, applies it to our heart. It gets, hopefully, used in our life. The unbeliever gets a few tips here and there about how the world works, but it's not the same as it is for the Christian. What is wisdom? We need to return and answer that question. We looked at this when we first started the book, but that's been some months now. The word wisdom, chokmah in Hebrew, is used 182 times just in the wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and some Psalms. Wisdom really is the ability to make right choices in life. The ability and skill to make right choices in life. And we do that through learning God's Word and applying it. We do that through observing other godly people as they live out their lives. And we do that through putting it all together in our everyday experience and then making wise choices, making good choices. A short definition is wisdom is skillful living in every area of our lives to the glory of God. Skillful living. Skillful in God's eyes, not in man's eyes. Wisdom comes down to the ability to judge well. Can you judge a thing well? Can you make a discerning decision? Do you use discernment? So much of wisdom comes down to that. I like the way the uh, theologian Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He says, True discernment means not only distinguishing the right from the wrong. It means distinguishing the primary from the secondary. The essential from the indifferent. And the permanent from the transient. And yes, it means distinguishing between the good and the better. And even between the better and the best. Sometimes it's between right and wrong. Between what is sinful and what is righteous. Other times, it's between wasting our time or using our time for God's glory. And other times, it's between two things that are, one is good, but one is even better, and we should be doing that instead. That is really wisdom. Growing in wisdom is part of the Christian life. There's a type of wisdom out there that sounds Christian. It sounds biblical, and yet it's not. It's common amongst American Christianity, cultural Christianity. And when a person has this fake wisdom, they pretend to be wise. They pretend to be discerning. They speak like it, but you don't see it lived out in their life. You don't see any difference really in the way they live compared to an unbeliever. This person can talk the theology. They can use Christian terms. But when it comes down to it, there's very little practice in their life. This might be a new believer. Might be a new believer who hasn't learned much and yet... They get prideful. They start to criticize and correct other believers who've been in the faith for some time. This might be a long-time believer who thinks they're wise. Maybe a person says, I'm very wise, but they make the same mistake, the same sin, over and over and over and do nothing to change it. Or it could just be a false convert. Somebody who speaks to you about churchy things. You think this person must be godly. They're using all this terminology I've never heard, and yet there's no real difference in the way they live. You don't see it practiced in their lifestyle. Well, here in this section that I just read to you, Solomon is wanting to teach us a lesson about wisdom. What's the kind of wisdom that you should have? What kind of wisdom does God actually bless in a person's life? We all want to be blessed by God. Blessing is everything from eternal life, down to just providing everyday needs that we have. And we want God to bless us. We want God to take care of us. I read to you in Psalm 33 this morning about how God takes care of his people. And as Christians, we can be blessed if we live according to what God has taught, or we can be disciplined if we don't live according to what God has taught. To be blessed doesn't mean you have ultimate wealth, health, and prosperity. That's prosperity gospel. That's false teaching. But to be blessed means that God takes care of your needs. It means that He opens doors. It means that He answers prayers. It means that He blesses His people like He's promised to do. Well, Solomon wants to teach us about what real godly wisdom looks like. He wants us to see the kind of wisdom that God really blesses versus the wisdom that only pretends to be godly. So in this passage, he's going to give us four characteristics of the kind of wisdom that God blesses. How do we know what that looks like, Solomon? How do we know what we should pursue in our life? Well, he's going to tell us here. He's already told us much about wisdom. He's going to give us four more here. Four characteristics of the kind of wisdom that God blesses. And the purpose there is so that we might live with true wisdom and glorify God. Is God glorified when you're saved? Yes, He is. Is God also glorified when you live out a godly life? You grow in your Christ-likeness? Yes, he is. It's false teaching to tell people, and churches do this all the time, to tell people, okay, you prayed a prayer. You've said the words you need to say to be saved. You check the box. You're getting into heaven. That's false teaching. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. That's a gospel call. That's a gospel call. He didn't say, you know, if you feel like it today, take up your cross, and I'll check with you in a couple of years. No, it's every day. And so while Solomon's not using the language of the New Testament, he is indeed telling us about how to live a godly life. So four characteristics. First of all, number one, God blesses wisdom that fears God first. If you want to be blessed by God, you fear God first. And we know that's all over the New Testament. Focus on the kingdom and he'll take care of all these things. But we find it over and over again in the Old Testament as well. We must fear God first. We must put God first in our life. Not like he's the cherry on top, but he is the everything of our life. And he'll take care of all our needs. When a baby's born into the family, they don't have to worry about going out and getting a job on day one, providing for themselves, clothes, food. Who takes care of them? The parents. The father should be the one providing. Well, God is our heavenly father. And if we fear him, If we're in awe of Him, if we love Him with an intense zeal, there's more to fear than just being afraid. We shouldn't be afraid of God if we're one of His children, if we're believers. But if we truly fear Him, then He will bless us. Well, we have to be careful with these verses. You probably heard when I read through them that there are some interesting verses here. And many people have twisted them to their own means, to their own uh, needs, to their own wants and desires. One commentator said, no verses in Ecclesiastes, or in the entire Bible for that matter, are as easily misunderstood and twisted as these first four verses. People use these verses to live a sinful life. They use them as an excuse to go out and do what they want in life. Let's start with verse 15. I've seen everything during my lifetime of Hevel. Now your translation might say futility, vanity. There's all kinds of ways to translate the Hebrew word Hevel. But havel just means a vapor, a mist, something that's fleeting, something that's gone really fast. It's like that mist from the car engine on a cold day and then it disappears. It's like your breath on a cold day. It's there and it's gone. For the first time, he's saying his own life is short. His own life is a vapor. Now, he's been teaching that. He's been teaching about havel all the way through the book. It's almost in every section that we've looked at. And now he says, my lifetime is short. I need to get this information to you. I've seen these things, and I want to write them down and teach others. Now, the phrase, I have seen, he's used that 11 times so far in the book. He has said, I've seen, I've recorded all of these accounts, all of these things that I've observed under the sun. He's admitting here that his life is short, and he has sought out, And recorded the important things. As he looks back over his life. All that he's learned. And he's recording them. He's writing them down. This reminds me of Job 7.16. Where Job says, I waste away. I will not live forever. Leave me alone. For my days are but a breath. My days are hevel. They're short. And Psalm 78.33. So he, God, brought their days. Talking about the enemies. Brought their days to an end in hevel. And their years in sudden terror. Life is short. We need to learn the lesson now and live it out. We're not going to get another 200 years to live. We're not going to get another 1,000 years like they did in the beginning of the Bible. Life is short. And it's getting shorter and shorter as we age. So what has Solomon seen that he wants to teach us here? He says, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. Somebody who appears to live a holy life is dying soon, sudden. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in wickedness. He just keeps on living. That seems backwards. That's not how it's supposed to work. That's not the natural order of things in the world. The righteous should be blessed and live longer because of it. And the wicked should be punished and die sooner. In fact, much of Scripture says that very thing. Much of scripture says that's how the way it works. That's how the way God has designed it. If you don't obey my commandments, he tells Israel, then you'll die. But if you want to live, obey my commandments. Talking about them living in the land. So what is Solomon saying here? Well, there's a natural way things are done. And you read those in Proverbs. Different slices of life, these Proverbs will apply. They're The general truth, the natural way things work in the world that God has designed. But sometimes things don't go that way. And it challenges us. Now, the unbeliever just says, see, there is no God. And the Bible says, that's a fool. That's a fool who looks at the world and says, there is no God. Solomon doesn't say that. He doesn't say there is no God. He just says, I've observed this, and it's frustrating to humanity. It's frustrating to the righteous as they look and see such things. Throughout the book, though, he's been telling us the same message. Only God knows the future. Only God knows what's coming. Only God determines the day of a person's death. There's a time for everything and everything in its season. Only God knows when the wicked will die and when the righteous will die. And only God determines how those things will happen and when those things will happen. He determines the day of everyone's death. All of us. We already have a day set. And God knows what it is. We don't know. And that's frustrating because we want to know everything, don't we? We couldn't handle knowing everything, but we still want that. That's part of our sinful nature. We want to know what God knows. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. They wanted to be as wise as God. They wanted to have the knowledge of God. So they took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Solomon says, I've observed this. I've observed it, and it's not right, he's saying at least in man's way of thinking, under the sun. So given that this happens, given that sometimes the righteous doesn't always live a long life, sometimes the foolish, sinful person lives the long life instead, maybe then the answer is just to try harder. Maybe I'm not righteous enough. You know, I've got that cancer diagnosis that says my life is going to be short. Maybe the answer is to work harder at it. Then God will bless us. Verse 16. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Solomon says, don't think that way. He already knows this objection's coming. Don't be excessively righteous. Because people are saying, well, maybe I can be wise enough to cheat death. Maybe I can learn and learn and learn and even study my Bible and memorize the whole thing and learn all theology. That doesn't work. Well, you can just look at church history. Sometimes people are martyred for their godliness. Great theologians and preachers like John Calvin or Charles Spurgeon die in their 50s. Solomon's saying, don't try that. He's already tried it. In fact, back in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity or hevel. But isn't righteousness good? Why is he saying not to excel at that? Isn't it good to be righteous and wise? Don't we want to be growing in that? Haven't I just spent the last few minutes telling you how important that is in your life, to be wise? Yes, but he's not speaking here of true wisdom. He's not speaking of of godly wisdom, godly righteousness. If that was the case, there's no end to it. We'll never achieve perfection, and so we should always be striving to be more like Christ. Notice he says, excessively righteous, overly wise. He's talking about a self-deluding kind of righteousness. He's talking about what he said in Proverbs 3.7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Being wise in your own eyes isn't evil. You're prideful. You've got the haughty spirit that he's been talking about. People would say, you're acting holier than thou. You're just trying to be holier than everybody else. Now sometimes that phrase is used for against true godly people living out the Christian life. But sometimes there are Pharisees. There are legalists who go around looking down their nose at everybody else, thinking that they're holier than everyone. As a Christian, we ought to think that we're below everyone else. That we are a humble servant of everyone because we're such great sinners. And yet there are people who think, I can just work hard enough and be more righteous and God will bless me and God will prolong my life. And it ends up Being a self-righteous lifestyle that ends up leading to legalism. People tend to think, well, my flavor of the Christian life looks like this, and you should do it as well. I like these movies, or I don't watch movies at all. You should agree with me. I dress this way, so you should agree with me. I have this translation of the Bible. I have this publication that I read. I have this book that I like. Everyone should be just like me. And that person tends to think they're very righteous. They're very wise. They're always the ones talking but never listening. And Solomon says, don't be like that. That's just going to lead actually to a shortened life. That's going to be a run, a destruction of your life. Don't do that. Verse 16 tells us that to strive to do all these works of self-righteousness aren't going to prolong your life. A person can still die young. Only God knows when you're going to die. Only God knows if you're going to suffer adversity. So stop trying to somehow earn credit with God even as a believer. It doesn't work. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and he said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, you're excessively righteous. You're like the Pharisees. And that's not who Jesus came for. He didn't come for the person who already thinks they have it all, who already thinks they can be saved in their own works, made holy by their own works. He said, I came for the sinners, the person who recognizes their sin, the person who understands that they need a Savior. People say, fine, if that doesn't work, then I might as well just go live a wicked lifestyle. If righteousness doesn't really matter, why not? I'll just go live a wicked lifestyle. Because those people live longer anyway sometimes. We all know evil, sinful people who have lived a long life, had very little adversity. Maybe I'll just follow them. Well, he handles that in verse 17. Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, people twist this verse here. You can see, if you've been around a while, you can see how they would twist this. They like to say, well, Solomon here is just saying, take the middle road here. Don't try to be too holy with God. And don't go too far out in your sin. Just sin a little and do a little good and sin a little and do a little good. And it will all balance out in the end. That's kind of American cultural Christianity, right? Yeah, I messed up along the way, but I've done enough good that it will balance the scale. It will balance me out. And they sometimes point to this verse to try to prove that. That's not what he's saying here. He's already talked about fearing God. He's going to end the book on saying, fear God and obey his commandments. So unless you want to be like the liberals and say the Bible is written by man and not God, you can't take it that way. We believe here that the Bible is inspired by God, that yes, human writers wrote it, but the ultimate author was God. And so it doesn't contradict itself. And I think if we take it in context, that's obvious. He's saying, look, if you just run headlong into sin and foolishness, you're going to die early. Don't think you can prolong your life by living like the sinful person who made it a long life. Well, that person drank and they smoked and they went out and had a party every night and they did all these sins. And Look, God let them live to be 100. Everybody's got a family member like that, right? I'll just follow them. It doesn't work like that. Solomon says, why would you come to a wicked end? Why would you die before your time? There's no guarantee you're going to live long like the other people who did. And then he sums it up in verse 18. It's good that you grasp one thing and don't let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. There it is. Fear God. Love Him with all your being. Be concerned that that you would do something that God doesn't want you to do. We often tell our children... When they're having a bad attitude and they won't get out of that bad attitude. Would God be pleased with your attitude right now? And we're not teaching our children to turn around and try to earn righteousness. We're just letting them think about God's perspective. Does God like your sin? And the answer, of course, is no. Well, as a Christian who fears God, we understand that. We understand he's holy. We understand that God is jealous for all of our love, all of our being, And we ought to love Him back as much as we can with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Fear God. And he says you'll come forth with both of them. I think he's looking back here to verse 16. Both the things that were mentioned there. Wisdom and righteousness. If you fear God first, you'll get righteousness and you'll get wisdom. But if you don't fear God first and you just try to work, 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 work to get more righteousness, to get more wisdom, it's fake. It's not real. You're deluding yourself. It leads to self-righteousness. True wisdom fears God first and ends up with more wisdom and righteousness. Fearing God is what's most important. Don't try to play the game of chance. Well, this person's like this. I'm going to live like that for a while. That didn't work. I'm going to switch over. No, look to the Bible. Look to what God says. That's the standard. The standard is not what people appear like out in the world. We've already seen in Ecclesiastes where he says, the grass is not greener on the other side. Let's not compare ourselves to others. Let's look to God and fear him. Well, the second characteristic of godly wisdom, the second characteristic of wisdom that God blesses, is that you admit your own sin. God blesses wisdom that admits your own sin. We have a problem with even talking about sin. Somebody recently Uh, came to our church and said they've been in a church that never talks about sin and repentance. They spent years in this church and they never heard preaching on sin. They never heard preaching on repentance. We have a whole world that doesn't like to talk about that. And Solomon's going to explain here that if you want to be truly wise, as a follower of God, as a follower of Christ, we would say, if you want to be wise, you need to confess your sin. You need to admit that you're a sinner and just be real. Don't think pie in the sky. Don't be like the holiness movement of the people who say let go and let God. They said you could be perfect at some point in your life. John Wesley used to teach that it's possible, it's possible for a person to live a perfectly holy life. And Solomon and the rest of the Bible says, no, it's not. And you need to be real about that. Not optimistic. Someday I'll be perfect in this life. It's not going to happen. Let's look at how he explains it here. 19. Wisdom strengthens a wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. So he starts off with a positive affirmation of how important wisdom is. Because everything else he's going to say is a limit to wisdom. Wisdom is great, but there's a limit to it. And before he gets into the limits, he needs to just say once again that it's a positive thing. It's a good thing to have wisdom. One person's wisdom. That's according to God. Godly wisdom compared to ten rulers who take care of the needs of the citizens. That's what he's doing here. He's comparing. If one man has the wisdom of God and is living that out in his life, he is more valuable than ten politicians who are getting together trying to use their worldly wisdom. But wisdom has limits. And he goes into that starting in verse 20. Indeed, there's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. This is Solomon's teaching on total depravity. Total depravity, which is the the doctrine in the Bible that says we're all sinners. We're all sinners, and sin has corrupted every part of us. We're born with a sin nature, and it affects all of us. Not just our desires, not just our body, our thinking as well. Everything about us is affected by sin and it causes us to desire to want to do sin. Until the Lord changes your heart, you desired sin. You desired what you wanted and you did whatever it took to get it. If it was nice, if it was uh, something that society approved of, you did it for your own selfish reasons. The nicest unbeliever still does things For their own reasons. Not for God's reasons. Not for God's purpose. Not for God's glory. But for their own glory. And Solomon says, there's not even a righteous man. He's not even talking about unrighteousness. He's saying that the most holy people in the world can't be perfect. Sometimes Protestants look at, they're untaught Protestants, but they look at the monastic lifestyle. Monks living in the desert in a cave who just sort of meditate all day and look at a few verses from the Bible and pray the rosary and all that stuff. And they think, man, that's a godly lifestyle. That person probably never sins. There's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good who never sins. Now that person in the cave doing all those things isn't, isn't really righteous anyway, but that's a different sermon. Sometimes what we think is the most righteous out there isn't according to Scripture. And Solomon says, and remember you sin, even if you're living a holy life. Don't forget that. This is the same kind of thing he mentioned, almost word for word, in First Kings 8.46. He's dedicating the temple, and he says to God, when they sin, talking about the nation, when they sin against you, and in parentheses, our Bible has, for there's no man who does not sin. So Solomon is praying, and he says, when they sin against you, and he's going to ask God to forgive them, but he says out loud, for there's no man who does not sin. There's no one who does not sin. Even a man who's strong in wisdom, strong in righteousness, is still a sinner. Now, sometimes we agree with that, but we forget that it applies to us individually as well. What about you? How often do you sin? Well, not that much. Not that much. This sermon's for the person sitting next to me. Well, Paul said in Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one not one. Well, there's that one person that's perfect. No, not one. Jesus was the only one. There's not one person who's righteous, not even one. And some think he's quoting this verse in Ecclesiastes. Others say, no, it sounds more like Psalm 14, but it doesn't match Psalm 14. It's closer really to this verse, Ecclesiastes 7.20. Romans 3.23, again, Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all sin. Even if you've been redeemed, even if you have a new heart, even if you're following Christ, even if you're truly striving for holiness, which you should be, you have to admit you still sin. There is no perfection. There is no perfection in this life. Perfection's in heaven. So we have to stop and say, you know, whatever we get from God, we don't deserve. He is a good and godly Father, and He gives us what we need, but we really don't deserve it because we still sin, don't we? We still sin. R.C. Sproul was often asked, why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, there's good people out there. Why do bad things happen to them? You know what he said? That only happened once and he volunteered. He's talking about Jesus. There's only one good person that ever lived and he was the God-man, Jesus Christ, and He volunteered. For the bad things to happen to him. He volunteered for that to occur. There are none good, Solomon says. And we need to admit that. Even the Christian needs to admit that. In fact, 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He says, that's not even a Christian. You don't know the gospel if you go around saying, I never sin. I'm a Christian, but I never sin." There's a lot of false teachers. Joyce Myers was recorded as saying that she has never sinned. And she's never been a sinner since the day God changed her heart. She said, I've never sinned. Sin is certain. It's as certain as death and taxes. More certain, right? Some people get away with not paying taxes. but You don't get away without sinning in this world. It's going to happen because you're a son or daughter of Adam. So just admit it. Admit that you're a sinner who still commits sin. Well, here comes the objections. There must be some people, Solomon. Come on. Verse 21. Also, do not take seriously. Literally, the Hebrew here is take to your heart. Don't let it affect your heart. All words which are spoken. So that you will not hear your servant cursing you. He says, first of all, there's all these servants, all these slaves in the world. Which is the majority of the population. Up until modern times. And he says, they curse their masters. They talk behind their masters back. we would say today, there's all these employees in the world, and they talk bad about their bosses, their managers, their employers. They sin with their tongue. And so he's hinting at we shouldn't respond in kind. Just let it pass. Don't hear it. Don't respond in kind. Don't, Don't sin against them like you're tempted to do, even as a righteous Christian. Charles Spurgeon was talking to his pastoral students. Every Friday, he would have the young preachers come in, and he would lecture them. And they put this in a book called Lectures to My Students. And he said that a pastor ought to have one blind eye and one deaf ear. He said, you cannot stop people's tongues. And therefore, the best thing to do is to stop your own ears and never mind what is spoken. There is a world of idle chit-chat abroad. And he who takes note of it will have enough to do. And this is good advice for all of us. Somebody's going to say something you don't like. They're going to say something about you behind your back. Maybe it's a sin. Maybe you should approach them and tell them that. But often it's just something you've got to let pass. Just let it go. Their criticism, just let it go. Don't sin back. Certainly don't sin back against them. This is what parents are constantly doing, right? Fighting this issue in the family where one child sins against the other. And what's the child who was sinned against you? He's going to hit them back. He's going to say bad words to them back, or whatever happens in your household. Solomon says in verse 22 You also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. You've done it. You've sinned. The most easy sin that a person can commit is a sin of the tongue, a sin of speech, a sin of the mouth, to say something bad about somebody. It's what we're warned about over and over in Proverbs. In the book of James in the New Testament, James 3 is all about the tongue. It's a fire. It can set a whole forest on fire. The whole world can burn up because of someone's tongue, the words they say. Everyone sins with their mouth. And they've said something sinful about another person. Just confess it, he says. Just, just confess that you've sinned in this way and turn away from it, is the idea. By being aware that you're a sinner, you are more quickly to forgive others as well. Yeah, they said that about me, but I've done that much sin and more with my mouth. I'm just going to let it pass. I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to let it go. So let's admit that we're sinners. That's wisdom. That's wisdom that God will bless. That's wisdom that we should have and live out in our lives. Also, number three, God blesses wisdom that understands the dangers of folly. You've got to understand what it means to be foolish. So you avoid that. The Christian life is not just learning the positive side of things. It's knowing about the negative so you'll stay away from it. Knowing about the dangers so you'll avoid them. There's this thinking in America that if we just think positive, then good things will happen to us. If we just focus on the good that can happen in our life and never think about the bad that might happen, that might come in front of us, that we'll be blessed. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible is a realistic picture of what's happening in the world. And there are dangers out there. There are sins. There are temptations that we all have. The devil knows about it. The world knows about it. And our own flesh knows and desires those sins. So in verse 23, I tested all this with wisdom. All that he's taught us already, he's put to the test. And he said, I will be wise. Having wisdom is a good thing. And he said, I'll be wise. But it was far from me. It was distant. It was remote is what it means in Hebrew. It was too far away. Now, how can Solomon say this? How can he say he wanted to be wise, but he failed at it? How is that possible? He was the most wisest man in the Old Testament. God granted him all this wisdom. How can he say it was too far from him? He was wise, but he didn't have all wisdom. He didn't know everything. The biblical account, if you read 1 Kings, tells us that God gave Solomon wisdom primarily to discern and to administer justice. That was the purpose of the wisdom. Now, he had wisdom in other areas. The Bible tells us he knew all these things about plants and animals and he could write proverbs and write psalms. But mainly God gave that to him so that he would be an effective godly ruler over Israel. Which means he didn't know all things. Only God can know all things. Only God is all wise. And Solomon says, I've tested my life, the things I've learned with wisdom. And here's what I figured out. Some wisdom is too far away from me. It's hidden from me, in other words. I can't find it. It's distant. It's remote. Because only God is all wise, is the point. And he gets to that in the next verse, 24. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? That's the same word here for remote as it is in the NASB for far from me. Same word in Hebrew. They just translate it differently. Literally, what has been is remote and deep, very deep. Our translation says, exceedingly mysterious. It's deep, very deep. Not like as in deep, too hard for us to understand, although it is. But it's so far away. It's so far down there in the darkness, I can't see it. Meaning, God is unfathomable. God is all wise and we can't know all that he knows. Why do things happen the way they do? What's the master plan? Solomon wants to know. I want to discover these things. What is God doing when people suffer? Why do people die when they're living a godly life? Why do people continue living when they're living a sinful life? Why do these bad things happen to me in my life? Can't figure it out. Only God knows such things. And this is very close to what Job says. Job opens it up even more. Go back to Job 28. Job 28. We've looked at this some months ago. But it's good to go back to because it does indeed connect with Ecclesiastes. Job is another wisdom book. If you just go back to the left side of your Bible there, you'll see Job chapter 28 and verse 12. He asks a similar question. A question that Solomon has continued to ask in Ecclesiastes. But where can wisdom be found? Where is it? Where's the place of wisdom? Where's the place of understanding, he says. And he goes through all these things that people do to dig up precious stones, gems, metals. They dig down in the ground. But they don't find wisdom down there. And in his day, that would have been a great feat of invention. But verse 23, here's the answer. God understands its way and he knows its place. Talking about wisdom. God knows where it is. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. We're under the sun and God is above us and he can see all things. And when he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, Then he saw it and declared it, and he established it and also searched it out. God knows all things. He knows why the rain falls here and not there, how the rain is made, where it comes from, the wind, everything. The thunderbolt. Things we're still studying today, trying to figure out exactly how it happens. Whether man says it's going to rain, it doesn't rain. Because he's not God. Only God knows all things. Now, look how Job finishes this. Verse 28, 28. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. The fear of the Lord. And to depart from evil is understanding. In other words, stop trying to worry about figuring out all that God knows and just fear Him and follow Him. It's that simple. When you get mad at God, you're just upset because you don't know all that He does, all that He knows, all that He works out in the world. You're not God. Remember, that was the first sin. The sin was pride, trying to think that Adam and Eve could be like God. And we go back to that when we get upset with God. It's not fair, God. How can you let that happen? Solomon says, don't do that. I tried that, and it was far from me. Who can discover it? Then he says in verse 25 here, I directed my mind to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom and an explanation. To know the evil of folly, the foolishness of madness. Just because we can't know all that God knows doesn't mean we shouldn't search out wisdom. We should. You don't give up. You don't just sit back on the couch and say, God's going to grow me spiritually. I don't have to do anything. You strive for holiness. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear of God. Trembling before God. So Solomon says, "I, I can't know all that God knows, but I did try to study wisdom as much as I could. He continued to study, to observe, to learn. Look at this list of things that he was doing. It's very comprehensive, isn't it? He says, an explanation of how things work. You see that word, explanation? That's a Hebrew term in math. That's an accounting term, a mathematical term. And he's saying, how does it all add up? What's the equation to figure things out in life? Just to get wisdom. How how does this all add up? How does it work? And when he could learn as much as he could, he said, I discovered something. Verse 26. Something more bitter than death. He was looking for answers. He was looking for wisdom. He was looking at foolish people and their madness, living their crazy life, their sinful life. And he said, here's what I found. Something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains, One who is pleasing to the God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Now, if people liked 16 and 17 and twisted it, you can imagine the accusations that start flowing in this verse. In our world today, you have to be politically correct. Feminism often reigns supreme. And so people look at this and say, Solomon hates women. The Bible hates women. Christians hate women. Go over to Ecclesiastes 9.9. But this is what the world says. And while it might be a, a silly response to this, you need to have some verses in mind so you could turn around and answer this. Ecclesiastes 9.9, 9, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. Now, if he hates all women and thinks they're all snares, traps, nets, chains, it's kind of interesting that a few chapters later he tells you to go find one and marry them. Not to mention in Proverbs, he says an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Proverbs 12, 4. 14, 1, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs nineteen fourteen. A prudent wife is from the Lord. Who can forget Proverbs 31 and all that it says about a godly wife there? Solomon doesn't hate women. In fact, his problem wasn't that he hated women. He had quite a few wives. So what's he talking about here? Well, there are different views. I'll run through them real quickly because you'll see them in different study Bibles and commentaries. One view is that this is just talking about marriage. Marriage is tough, and uh, be careful who you marry. There's going to be conflict. Genesis 3 does indeed say that, but that doesn't fit the context here. This isn't tips on marriage, wisdom about marriage. Another view, number two, is that this is just speaking of an adulterous woman or prostitute. And it does match. Some of the descriptions here It does indeed match what's in Proverbs for the adulteress, for the prostitute. But again, it seems strange that he would suddenly inject that in this paragraph about wisdom. Because he doesn't give any other follow-up after that or before it. The third view, which I think is the right one, is that this woman represents folly or foolishness. It fits the context. He's talking about wisdom. He's talking about foolishness. He searched it all out. And he says there's a woman who captures the foolish. Now, the foolish in the Bible isn't somebody who's born with a brain problem. Isn't somebody who didn't go to school, can't read. The foolish in the Bible is a sinner who continues to sin against God and doesn't care. Who continues to run headlong. It's like that video that's been going around where they pull the sheep out of the ditch. And he runs down and jumps right back in. Way down there in the ditch. A deep one that they've dug for a pipeline. That's the foolish. And this woman here represents foolishness. If you go back to Proverbs, that's what he said here. Go back to the book of Proverbs, chapter 9. Solomon's writing this in his early life. 9.13. He's writing Proverbs in his early life. He writes Ecclesiastes in his later life. Proverbs 9:13, "The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house, on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by, who are making their path straight. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here, and to him who lacks understanding, she says, "Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant." But he does not know that the dead are there. That her guests are in the depths of Sheol. See, he uses a metaphor. He uses the picture of a woman enticing people to come in and live a life of foolishness. The woman of folly. And that's what he's saying here. And in fact, that interpretation is backed up by what he says next at the end of that verse. The one who fears God will escape, but the sinner won't. The sinner continues to be trapped by this woman named Folly. But the one who pleases God, the one that God has changed his heart and he continues to live out a holy life, he will escape foolishness. He will escape folly. So we need to understand the dangers of folly. We need to stay away from foolishness. Jesus spoke of this theme when he said, the wise man will build his house on the rock. The foolish one on sand. Don't be foolish. The person who reads the Sermon on the Mount, listens to the Sermon on the Mount, and lives it out, is wise. They're building their house on Christ, on the rock. But the foolish person doesn't care. I just need a house right now. I'm going to plop it down on this sand. The floods come and wash it all away. God blesses wisdom that understands the danger of folly. Well, let's look at the last one, number four. Fourth characteristic. God blesses wisdom that recognizes the scarcity of, Of true wisdom. True wisdom is scarce. How do you find true wisdom? Well, you read the Bible, it's not scarce there. But if you start looking around in the world, how hard is it to really find a truly wise person? Not wise according to a certain profession, but wise in how they live their life, wise in how they follow and fear God. Now, you can come to church every week and find, hopefully, some of those people. But if you just took off in downtown San Antonio, how many people would you have to go through until you found a truly wise person according to God's standards? Verse 27, Behold, I've discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation. More mathematical language. He's adding things up. He's counting. He's counting people. I've known all these hundreds and thousands of people in my life. And how many have I actually found that could provide an explanation? That could tell me how things truly work according to God? Very few is going to be the answer. He's searching for someone with true wisdom. Verse 28, which I'm still seeking, but I've not found. As he writes this book, he's about to die, and he still hasn't found that many people who can explain the ways of the world. The way that God actually has designed things, the way that God operates, God's sovereignty, God's providence, biblical teaching, in other words. And then he starts giving us some numbers, which sometimes this will offend people as well. I found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Again, he doesn't hate women. He's not saying men are smarter than women. This verse people like to take out of context, again, but let's put it in context. The discussion is about wisdom. And he's searching for somebody with true wisdom. And he's saying, I've known about 2,000 people in my life. I've known them well. I've talked to them. I've only found one person out of 2,000. And that one person happens to be a man. That's all he's saying. That's the way they spoke back then. They didn't just say 2,000, found one. It's Ecclesiastes. It's wisdom literature. So he gives details. He, he puts it in a certain way that we can understand. He's saying, I just haven't met anybody that's a woman that is wise. But again, in Proverbs, what does he said? A wise woman you should search out and marry. So he knows they're out there. He's heard about them. He just doesn't have any experience with them. I'll tell you why in just a second. But here he's just making the point that out of roughly 2,000 people that he's known, he's only found one man who had the kind of wisdom that we should all strive for. I think that's David, his father. I think he's talking about David. I've only known one godly man who truly loved the Lord and could explain these things. I think there were other believers in Solomon's day. He's not saying I don't know any Christians or believers in the Old Testament. They wouldn't say Christians, but he's not saying I don't know any believers. He's saying a man who could truly explain things, who could truly explain the things of God to me, his father David, is a good option. Well, the number 1,000 also could indicate the 1,000 wives that Solomon had. Commentator Bill Barrick says that uh, we should consider the type of women with whom Solomon had the closest acquaintance. 1,000 harem wives and concubines only turned the king's heart away from God. No wonder he could not find a wise woman. Those who dominated his life drew him into idolatry and a departure from God and God's law. You read 1 Kings, and what happened? He, his heart was turned by his wives toward their gods. He married outside of Israel. He married all these women. They wanted to set up idols so they could worship. He said, fine. Then he went up with them to worship. Then all Israel went up to worship. The problem is he needed to not do that and be around some wise women. Verse 29, behold, here's the conclusion. I have found only this. That God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Here's the ultimate answer. That God made men upright. He didn't create sin in us. He didn't. He made man and woman and he put them in the garden and he said, it was good, it was very good. Then what happened? The fall. Temptation. Eve was tempted by Satan, and she said, I can be like God. I can know all that he knows. I've never experienced any evil. I don't even know what evil is. I'll eat some of this fruit, and then I'll know. Then I can be wise like God. So God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Since the fall, man has been seeking devices, or your translation might say schemes. The Hebrew word is plan or invention. It's only mentioned one other place, in 2 Chronicles 26, 15. Speaking of Solomon, in Jerusalem, he made engines of war, invented, there it is, invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners. He invented weapons of war. And here in Ecclesiastes, he's saying that mankind has sought out many weapons, inventions, devices, ways to sin. Not weapons of warfare, but sinful weapons that we could use to entice, that we could use to sin even more and more. Mankind just wants to sin, and they invent more and more ways to sin. Because we have a sinful bent, he's saying. It causes a drive to seek out intricate schemes. Somebody had to think up these things. Somebody had to think up how to put pornography on the internet and make billions, spread it all around, get people hooked and addicted. Somebody had to think up all these different schemes that mankind could use to sin more and more. And we just keep on thinking up more and more ways. At first we say, well, this would be good for mankind. And suddenly we see what really happens. It turns around on us. In other words, God's not to blame for the lack of wisdom in the world. We are. Mankind is. We're to blame. It's not God's fault that we can't find a few wise people in the world. It's mankind's fault. No one seeks after God. No one does good. No one is perfectly righteous because of our sin. God is not to blame. Man is. But only God can make us upright again. That's something I want to conclude with. Only God can make us upright again. Mankind is bent. We're fallen. We're sinners. But we can be restored. We can by God. If God changes a person's heart, if that person believes in Christ, if they turn from their sin, And God changes their heart, of course, for them to do that, then we can be restored. Not perfect in this life, but we can start the process of growing to be more and more like God, like Christ. And then when we go to heaven, eternal salvation, eternal rest, eternal perfection. Then we'll be upright, we'll be righteous, perfectly righteous. That's the only way. We seek out devices. But God is holy. God is just. God restores. God loves his elect and will save them. So let's pray to him now on that topic. Lord, we do thank you for your wisdom in Scripture. It is precious to us. We love it. We need to grow in it more and more. Help us to remember the kind of wisdom that you bless so that we seek after that and not false wisdom, fake Christianity. And Lord, I pray that you would make us upright, that you would restore all of us and the kingdom with Christ. Let every person who hears this sermon understand that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. And I indeed pray that they would trust in Him and be with you forever and ever. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.